morning. See, I clean up well, you guys. All right, so before we get started, it's an exciting day when we get to baptize anyone, uh, and especially our kids. I just have to, I want to plug two uh, resources. Some of the things we do in family discipleship in our road mapping curriculum, uh, which you can find online, is we plug books that we think are helpful. Uh, I have one right here. This is the whole story for the whole family. It's a year of uh, Jesus-centered devotions. This one's really helpful because... It has uh, really easy to do devotions, actually make, has some fun activities to go along with it. So if you've got kids from three to about nine, ten years old, this is a great book. I actually have two free copies of this, so if you want one, come talk to me and I'll give it to you. And then we also have out there at our Spiritual Formation bookshelf, uh, the New City Catechism. This is 52 questions and answers um, that help guide the process of just helping our kids know who Jesus is and, and, and what the gospel is. So I would encourage you, if you uh, would like to go grab those, those are free. Uh, we got plenty of those. So we have been in the Psalms this summer. We have one more Psalm next week, and then we're going to be in the book of Jude, which is four weeks, and then we'll be in the book of Exodus. Um, so we're in Psalm 115 today, which is on page 293, and your blue Bibles that are around you. If you don't have a Bible at home, please take that. That is our gift to you. We want you to have a Bible that you can read. So we'll be in Psalm 115 today. Uh, so my wife and I both like uh, disaster movies, okay? So day after tomorrow type stuff. It gets even better the, the cheesier it gets. So like, you know, geostorm, computer, controlling the weather, that kind of stuff is really fun for us. I also personally uh, like satire. When satire is done well, uh, I like it. And finally, the two genres melded together last year uh, for a movie that came out on Netflix called Don't Look Up. So caveats, it's got some language in it, and I always do my research when it's, when it's rated R ahead of time, because it's got some sketch stuff at the end, which I just cut off and never watched. But I wanted to see how they took satire and combined this with one of my wife's and I's favorite genres. And the whole premise is, is that an asteroid is barreling down towards the Earth. And in typical asteroid-style movies, you would expect they'd come together, they'd figure it out, and they'd save the day. Bruce Willis would go up there, and they'd blow this thing up. This movie asked the question, what if that didn't happen? What if we weren't good at this? What if our dysfunctional society right now just couldn't handle this? Uh, and it plays on a bunch of different themes, but one of the things that I found to be incredibly um, telling is it asked the question, what if we're too disinterested? What if we don't care? What if we're willing to ignore reality and just because we like, you know, social media? And in the movie, they're, they're too busy, you know, scrolling on their phones to care. What if, what if there's too many things to entertain ourselves with, too many things to focus on? And that aspect of satire, I truly appreciated. Because you could easily apply that to our faith. Like a few weeks ago, we were in Psalm 19, and Psalm 19 has two big ideas uh, that creation declares the glory of God. That it, that it points to a creator and it declares his glory. And then later on in the psalm, it talks about the scriptures. How the scriptures give us this, this specific picture of who God is. That it, it tells us of, of beautiful truths. And when you combine the two, you see we have a God who definitely made this universe. And the scriptures tell us who this God is. And we as especially Southern Christians can listen to that sermon, 
can read that text and go, yes, amen. We can say we, 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 we believe in God. We majority of, of Southerners would even say they believe in Jesus. But the reality is, is we live like that's not true. We're going to see in the psalm says, our God is in the heavens. And we live like that's not a reality. Because we're so easily enamored, so easily in love with created things. That our attention and our focus and our affection and ultimately our worship is on lesser created things. Ignoring the reality of our creator God to our own demise. That is what this psalm is going to look at today. It's going to speak directly to us, calling us out for falling in love with lesser created things and not beholding our creator God for who he is. So we're going to see that picture and how that applies to us. So let me pray for us and then we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would open our hearts to receive your word, that we would be challenged, that we would see you as glorious, and you'd help us walk this out in faith and belief and repentance and obedience. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Psalm 115 is in a series of psalms, a series of five psalms called the, the Hallelujah Psalms, okay? So they're, they're, they're thematically, they all have the same kind of, uh, hallelujah is, is in its most base form is praise Yahweh. So it's praise the Lord. So that's what's showing up in these psalms. And at the very last one in this section, in Psalm 115, is a psalm that they would have uh, actually sang together at Passover meal. So at the Passover meal, they would have sat down and had good food and good wine, and they'd come together, and then they'd sing this joyous, challenging Psalm, starting in verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. So it's this joyous beginning. Not to us, O Lord. No, no, no. Not to us, but to your name give glory. Why? Because of, for the sake of, your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Because you are steadfast in your love towards us, O oh God, when we don't deserve it. Because you are faithful towards us, O oh God, when we are faithless. Not to us, O oh Lord, but to you be the glory. And that is joyously sung against the backdrop of those who taunt them. So we pick up in verse 2. Why should the nations say, where is their God. So that is the nations is the Gentiles. So at this point in redemption history, the Gentiles are outside the covenant of God. This is non-Jewish people. These are the surrounding nations around the Jewish people. They don't worship the God of Israel. They don't believe and they're taunting and they're saying, where is your God? And this is where the psalmist starts to get a little snarky. See, this, this psalm has some don't-look-up type of vibes to it. It's very satirical. It's very snarky. It's very sarcastic. And this is when the, the psalmist begins to answer that taunt and fire back in verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Our God is in the heaven. He does all that he pleases. He is not like your false gods, O nations, 
He's not a God that is tangible and created so that you can see. No, no, no. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. We don't have to do a song and dance to get his attention. And he doesn't step to our desires. That's not how our God works. He will not be coerced. He will not be cornered. He will not be convinced. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He is not like your gods. And then he goes on to dial up the snark even more. And he starts to criticize and belittle and make fun of their false idols. Verse 4 and following. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. He's, he's belittling them. He's comedically belittling their false gods. He says, your gods are precious. They're adorable. Look at its little mouth and its little nose. It's got little hands and little feet. I bet you put that beside your bed table at night. That is adorable. He is absolutely stomping on false idols. He says, no, no, no. Your God is not like our God. Our God is in the heavens. You have these false gods, and it is an absurd picture. This is what Elijah picks up in 1 Kings 18, belittling the false gods. Uh, in 1 Kings 18, he has a showdown with the prophets of Baal. Baal is one of the most uh, prominent false gods in the Old Testament. And at this point, the prophets of Baal have pretty much taken over Israel. And Elijah goes, all right, let's go. Let's go to Mount Carmel. Let's have a little showdown. We're going to set up an altar, put a sacrifice on there. We're going to see which God is real. We're going to figure out which God's going to come and light this sacrifice on fire. And then in 1 Kings 18, it says in verse 26 and following, And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. The prophets of Baal are calling out, Baal, answer us, answer us. But there was no voice. No one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. They started doing their little dance. Going around the altar, limping around. And one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Verse 27. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, cry aloud, for he is a god. Maybe he can't hear you. You should cry louder. Got to get his attention. He says, cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself, which is a cleaned up way of saying using the bathroom. Is your God, is he going to go to the bathroom? Where is he? <laughs> the mocking is on point. He says, or is he on a journey? Or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. Is he taking a nap? Go get him. Surely, and this, this does not sit well with them, and they get angrier. In verse 28, it says, And they cried aloud and cut themselves after, the custom, after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Why? Baal isn't real. He's not the one true God. And then Elijah goes on to say, step aside. They put water all over the altar, calls down 
uh, fire from heaven and boom, lights it up. And that's usually where the children's stories book Bible version kind of just stops. If you want to take it further and even do some dramatic reenacting, he goes and slaughters all the prophets of Baals. So, fun stuff to do in your household. More family discipleship advice for you. It's an absurd picture. That's what Elijah's getting at. Your, your gods aren't real. Bowing down to this is an absurdity. When I was in, uh, years ago, I was in India, and I was studying uh, Hinduism as a part of the study abroad program, and I went and traveled and looked at Hindu temples. Went to Hindu temples and watched. I watched people bow down to false idols. Like they, they, this made decorated idol with incense burning. I watched them and studied how they worshipped false idols. And when you see that picture, you see, man, how, how ridiculous is this? That you're bowing down, seeking for this to provide, for this to take care of you. What he's hitting at over and over again here is that idols are lifeless and they are dumb. No. Our God is in the heavens. So he gives this heavy, intense critique, and then in verse 8, he gives an absolutely helpful warning. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. What he highlights is an unbelievable truth. What you worship, you will become. What you worship, you will ultimately become. And if you worship these dead, lifeless objects, then you will receive spiritual death that comes along with it. You'll be spiritually deadened by it. Now, reading this through the lens of a 21st century Westerner, you might think, good. Glad we don't have little carved idols in our bedrooms. Am I right? Might want to distance ourselves from this might look at the Hindu practices of bowing down to false idols that still happen today and think, good thing that's not us. But the reality is, is that we do this, we just do it in a far more sophisticated manner. This is what Ezekiel and the prophet Ezekiel is picking up in Ezekiel 41, and it's going to be developed throughout the rest of the scriptures. In Ezekiel 41, he says, it says, son of man, these men have taken idols into their hearts, taking idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? And then in verse 6, he says, therefore say the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, repent and turn away from your idols and turn away your faces from all abominations. It is here that we see a theme that gets picked up and developed throughout the rest of the scriptures, that idolatry is worshiping anything in the place of God. It's heart idolatry. It's choosing anything and beholding that, loving that, worshiping that in the place of God. This is why John Calvin says that our hearts are idol-making factories. That, that we easily, because of our fallenness in our flesh, can make idols out of anything. That we would worship anything in the place of God. We are designed to worship. That's how humanity is designed. And ultimately, we're designed to worship the Lord, but we, we reject that for the tangible things that are right in front of us. And the psalmist is warning us 
If you worship idols, you will become like them. But the one who worships money through uh, greed, you ultimately, if you worship this, you will become like that dead object. Your heart will be hardened towards generosity. You will sacrifice and sever relationships with friends and church family and family. You'll sacrifice all of that because the goal is to make money, make money, make money. Stacks on stacks on stacks. If I can get that, then I will be happy. And ultimately, if you pursue this and you worship this, you will become Ebenezer Scrooge or Walter White. And it will ultimately end up to your own demise, hardening your own heart, deadened to what is ultimately good. If you bow down before the altar of pleasure, you will follow the road of sensuality until ultimately you don't have a taste, you have a distaste for God. And you fill that in with drugs or porn or exploration or whatever. But you follow that road, and what happens is you eventually just, you don't want God. I've watched people who went down that road, and then ultimately they're just like, I, I don't care anymore. And it deadens you spiritually until you're numb, and you don't want God. I uh, stumbled upon a quote from a Sri Lankan theologian that I have never seen before until this week. His name is Vinath Ramachandra, and I thought he nailed it. He said, it is not surprising that those who worship technology eventually develop machine-like personalities. Mark Zuckerberger, right? I mean, it develop machine-like personalities, emotionally underdeveloped, shallow in the relationships, driven by a desire to control and quantify every human situation, unable to appreciate beauty and value in anything outside the artificial. What an unbelievable critique on this cultural moment. We bow down to social media, we spend all of our time and our energy in the artificial this is going to get worse as the meta comes on board and everything else that comes with that. He says, no wonder. No wonder we have shallow relationships. We're driven to control and quantify every human situation. You see that in kids that are on devices all the time. You see that in adults who have lost the ability to have a nuanced discussion with anyone or just, lo just lobbing grenades like crazy. Because... You've bowed down before this idol over and over and over again, and it's starting to make you in its image. He goes on to say, those who worship sex, on the other hand, are incapable of trust and commitment in their human relationships and hide a lonely existence behind a mask of superficial adulthood. Finoth is throwing bows, man. He is going for it. I mean, he is absolutely, you can go on and on with this. He is absolutely showing us what the psalmist is teaching us, that idols will ultimately create you in their image. You no longer will be conforming to the image of our creator. When you bow down to idols, it makes you in their image, ultimately to our own spiritual destruction. You see why the psalmist has this aggressive, polemic, sarcastic defense, this aggressive nature against idolatry? There's so much at stake in the human soul. There was so much at stake for Israel, as ultimately it was their own destruction because they worshipped idols. There's so much at stake for us.
because our flesh loves it. Our flesh loves idols. A couple months ago, I was talking with one of our pastors. I was talking with Chet, and I was just, I was confessing some sin. I just was like, man, I'm just, I am, my flesh loves sin. Like, I just, like, I, I, I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm struggling right now. And he had a very helpful picture that will stick with me for probably ever. He said, you got to see it for what it is. He said, it's, it's meth. And I was like, yes, it is meth. Absolutely is. Have you ever seen before and after, after pictures of what meth does to people? They're a normal functioning human being. And then a few years, the before and after, they, it's conformed them into this horrible image as they bow down to this drug over and over and over again. And it's stolen the life out of them. Yes, he knew how to get to me. I was like, that's absolutely it. It is like that. It spiritually decays and destroys. That's what sin does. That's what idolatry does. So he gives that aggressive warning, and then he pivots to beholding who our God is. In verse 9 and following, he says, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. He's going to repeat that three times, their help and their shield. That is kingship defense language, okay? He's saying our God is our help and our shield. He's the one that defends us. He's the one that provides for us. He's the one that takes care of us. Oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Oh, house of Aaron, verse 10, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The house of Aaron was a part of the tribe of Levi. This is where the priesthood came from was the house of Aaron. So what he's highlighting there is the priesthood is bowing down to, to foreign idols. They're falling prey to this, which absolutely fits pretty one-to-one with our current culture. Because the priesthood throughout America, and those who claim to be pastors, literally are leading people into worshiping idols, worshiping success, worshiping money for the sake of lining their own pockets and getting a G4 and all that mess. We're not much different. Verse 11, you who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Saying, you who fear the Lord, everyone who fears God, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. He's like, believe this. Believe this. He will protect you. He is better. He will protect you in the way that idols cannot. And then he Moves from this repeated promise to a repeated blessing. He says in verse 12 and following, The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. He's saying this, this Lord, this God will bless us. Listen, Israel, Aaron, everyone who fears the Lord. And this is a deep spiritual blessing. This is not a shallow material one. Believing that ultimate hope is found in material blessings that will ultimately end up in a landfill one day. No, this is deeper than that. This is the kind of blessing that resounds into generational blessings. Verse 14, he says, May the Lord give you children, or give you increase, you and your children. May this blessing resound through you, to your children, to your children's children. 
What a powerful legacy of faith that we might uphold when we behold who our God is. This is in verse 15. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. It's highlighting a truth that God is in the heavens. He rules and reigns. But as he, we see in Genesis 1, he entrusts earth. He gives dominion, uh, gives us the ability to have dominion over the earth. That's why it says be fruitful and multiply. Uh, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. That's the truth that he's highlighting there. And then in verse 17 and 18, the final two verses, he says, The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. He says, those who ultimately worship idols, those who find their hope and satisfaction and fulfillment in idols, well, they ultimately will receive what is coming, death. And the picture we see of that is judgment. He says, but we, we will trust the Lord. We will praise him. We won't go down in silence. No, we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. All right, so this psalm is noticeably different than many of the psalms we've tackled before. Sarcasm shows up a little bit in the scriptures. Aggressive defenses like this show up a little bit. This is different than some of the psalms we have covered. And he is hammering one central truth over and over again. Idols are dumb. Idols are ridiculous. Idols are not worthy of worship. Our God is in the heavens. Behold him. Worship him. He is greater than idols. But the problem for Israel, and the problem really for us, is that idols are very tangible. Idols are, you can see them, you can touch them. It's the reason why they bow down to golden calves and Asherah poles. They, they, it's, they, they, could, they could grab a hold of it. The psalmist says that's foolishness. That's foolishness. Our God is so much bigger than that. Can't you see? Our God is in the heavens. Don't bow down to these objects. Don't worship anything in the place of God. And we may be more sophisticated. We may be more sophisticated than this time period. But we are not smarter. Not at all. We're very much like them. We may, listen, Southern Christians, we may know the Bible. We may know stories about Jesus. We may know the right things to say, you know, all, all kinds of things about who our God is. But to us, he's not as tangible. I'm not saying that Jesus is embodied. He certainly is, but he reigns at the right hand of God the Father. But idols are tangible. They're right in front of us. And our flesh says, I want it. Money is, tam is tangible. Put your hands on it. Pull up your app and watch your bank account or your crypto wallet, whatever it is that you do. You, you, you can see that. It's material. You can purchase things that your heart desires with that. Amazon packages are concrete and tangible, right? I thought about this this week. I was like, you know what? I should, I'm, I'm going to see if I can total up how much we spent at Amazon this year. So I thought I could go on Amazon and look at the, like at the order details and stuff in that section and see. But shocker, they don't let you know that. 
Because I don't, I don't want you to know how much you've spent there. Because it's a lot. That's tangible. It's something you can get in two days or less. That's tangible. You can put your hands on that. Social media is tangible. You can spend hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours obsessing, worrying, getting stirred up, getting angry, getting jealous. That's tangible. Children, spouses, relationships, friendships, success, comforts, you name it, our heart can make it and we can bow down to it. It's tangible. It's right in front of us. And our hearts will go after it until little by little our affections, our desire, and our worship towards God is slowly turned towards created objects and we're more deadened and more deadened and more deadened until spiritually it's like, I, I don't want God. And then we reject him. Just as the nation of Israel did. One of the things we talk about in our church is the concept of deep idols. The concept of deep idols. And, and if you want to, we have sermons that expound on this more. You can go on our website and you can go into our sermons and do in the search bar. And you can type in deep idols and hear some more teaching on this. But the premise is, is that we try to look at the sin beneath the sin. The motivation beneath the motivation. The idol beneath the idol. And there are four main uh, deep idols. Four main categories that you could funnel most of our sin into. That's comfort, control, power, and approval. And you could literally take any concrete idol that you'd bow down to and you could run it through those categories and see. Like if it's money, and that's something you obsess over, you think about, you live your life for. You could try to determine which, which deep idols is this rooted in. Is it, is it approval? Do I make lots of money so that I can be liked? So that people will accept me? So that I will get claps and adoration? Or it's control. Maybe you grew up with less money. And you said, I ain't doing this anymore. I will, I will absolutely control my future. And every dollar, every paycheck is another opportunity to control your destiny. Because you've rejected, ultimately, that God is sovereign over your future. But you can control it with your hands. Maybe it's, maybe it's power. You make money because that gives you influence. That gives you the ability to peddle and to meddle and to manipulate because it puts you the one in power. Maybe it's comfort. That you worship money because it brings the comforts in this life. You could buy the next car or the next house, the next vacation until you fill your life with comforts that never truly satisfy. Listen. We're not much different. We're not. We, this psalm is for us. And we, we have to see idols for what they are. We have to see it for what it is. So they're, health, they're as healthy as meth. They're as life-giving as the wood from your kitchen table. They're as secure as a house that is built right on the top of beach sand. They are not better. Idols are dumb. They're not worth pursuing. They're not worth worshiping. Trust in the Lord. He is ultimately worthy of our worship. With him comes blessing and promises. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. The psalmist 
is pleading with us, see God as better than idols. And when you start to believe this, listen, when you start to, when God starts to unlock this truth in your soul, when you start to realize that what you've worshipped doesn't satisfy, that it never truly brings fulfillment, whatever that is for you. And when you've examined your soul and you realize and God by His grace shows how infected we are with idol worship, how we bow down to so many other things through our attention, our affections, and our desire, and our worship. When you see that for what it is, your one logical response should be, how can the God who created everything, who is the only one worthy of my worship, how could He possibly love me in spite of all of my rejection, in spite of all of the worship that I've given towards lesser created things? And it is in that moment that you can discover the goodness of the gospel. And the good news of the gospel is that God knew that God knows all of that. He knows all the idols that you bow down to. He sees all of it. And still he sent his son to die for you. And still he sent his son to rise for us. And still he came to his Colossians 2 teaches, cancel the record of debt, the record of sin that stand against us with its legal demand. And his kindness, as Romans 2 teaches, leads us to repentance. Away from lesser created things back to our creator. Our God does all that he pleases. And the good news of the gospel is that it pleases him for you to worship him. And it pleases him for you to desire him. And it pleases him to see you repent of idols. Because they are not worthy of your worship. He is. The band's going to come up. And I just want us to sit in that truth as we get to sing one joyous song to close this out. You got to see idols for what they are. They're not worthy of your worship. They're not worthy of your life. The things that will worship in the place of God do not bring satisfaction. They do not bring joy. We need to do the difficult soul work of looking within of doing what Matt taught last week in Psalm 139. Search our heart. Examine our heart. Look at our life. Reveal what is hidden beneath. We're going to get an opportunity to do that this week in groups. To, to, to look at the idols. To have an honest discussion about what's happening in our hearts. What we're bowing down to. And the hope is, is we wouldn't hear this and go, okay, yeah, I know I do. I'll, I'll do better. That we look at the God of the universe and his beauty and his glory and his goodness and his grace and his mercy and his kindness and his unbelievable, unfathomable, unsearchable love towards us and say, I don't want this anymore. I don't want the lesser things that I bow down to. I don't want that life. I want Jesus. And that by grace, we begin to walk this out collectively as a church family and we'd find our worship and our fulfillment in him and not created things let me pray Heavenly Father I pray that you would convict our souls 
I pray that you'd help us see the ways we have fallen short. All the things we've bowed down to instead of you. And in confronting us in our sin, that you would help us see how good your grace is. That you love us because you love us, because of your great love towards us. And in that, you would recapture our hearts and our worship. And that we'd flee from, we'd see you destroy and smash to pieces the idols in our life. So that we can find eternal joy and blessing in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.